Welcome back for another episode of the Armchair Cinephile Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Spencer Howard from SupermassivePop.com. And I'm Scott Phillips with WRBL.com. And so what we do here every week is we uh, pick one streaming title in the vast sea of streaming titles and we zero in on it, spoilers and all, and just talk about it. The idea is that we love the movies so much and we're so grateful for the bounty that is through our internet. Thank you, Al Gore, for inventing it. Um, and so uh, so this week, just to let you know what we're going to talk about before we get into that main part of the show, is uh, In the Mood for Love, Wong Kar Wai's film that is currently streaming for free on the Criterion Channel streaming uh, service. And also you can rent it via various other services as well if you want to pay for it, if you don't have a Criterion Channel uh, membership. But before we do that, what we usually do is just kind of catch up. What have we been watching, reading, listening to, any kind of other thing in the media landscape that's taken our attention in the last week and then we jump into the movie proper so without further ado scott what you been up to man oh uh i have uh uh, participated in a sleep study does that sound like fun is that pop culture i I think i loved we were texting about this and i loved our (laughs) idea for like a horror movie sleep study comedy it sounds i think there's some potential there Yes. Yeah, exactly. I had, I had thought about pitching the idea of, you know, some kind of jackass style show where you go to sleep clinics across the country and just do like the weirdest, most bizarre things and just film the workers there (laughs) to see what their reactions are. Uh, I'm sure that they, uh, they see a lot of interesting stuff. One thing I saw that you uh, you posted was one of your your recent video reviews is a movie that we talked about maybe in our preview episode even uh, straight out of Sundance Miss Americana. Yes. Um, how was that? It, you know, it's really good. Uh, I will tell you, I you know, I don't have anything against Taylor Swift. It's just kind of not in my wheelhouse music wise. Yeah. Uh, to really follow her, but there's there's something I think inherently fascinating about just the uber famous i mean when you're talking like you know elvis presley the beatles uh michael jackson pre-sex scandal uh and somebody like taylor swift i mean somebody who is just literally you know uh, uh, an entity a product uh as well as a person and so the beginning of the movie is is kind of you know, kind of just, I think I described it as kind of like fan club kind of coverage. Uh, but as it moves along, it it, it kind of deepens and you start to see in a way kind of what a burden stardom can be. And, and her trying to kind of figure out her place in social media and, you know, do I come out and say things about certain issues or do I worry about alienating my fans? You know, am I somehow being robbed of my personhood by my celebrity? And so it really winds up being a, uh, excuse me, a really interesting uh, look inside, you know, this kind of, this woman who's kind of a universe and an industry unto herself. Yeah. It's still on our our must watch list. Um, my wife really wants to watch it. I, that she, so I, <laughs> my Taylor Swift history is this: is that I didn't think I knew a single Taylor Swift song um, until we went to New York City over Christmas. And as we were and we drove, and so as we were pulling in, Katie goes, "Play that song from." Um, 
from the Secret Life of Pets, the opening. It's Ezra, Ezra, my son's favorite, one of his favorite movies, and it's set in New York City. And as you see the city, it plays a song as Welcome to New York. And it's really fun and poppy, and it's about New York City. And I went to play it, and it was a Taylor Swift song, and I knew every word to it. <laughs> um, and so I have one Taylor Swift song, but but I do know of her fame and her reputation in terms of you know how many people love her. Not not person. I don't really know much of her gossip. I think she may have dated John Mayer. I think. Um, <clears throat> yeah, at so, some point. Yes. <laughs> and so, uh, but uh, but the idea of the scope of her fame, what it seemed, uh, her her trajectory in some ways reminds me of the film from uh, last or I guess 2018 at this point. Lux, someone in that kind of time period and age group and type of music. Um, so I'm fascinated by like what that must be like. So um, with Katie's knowledge and fandom of Taylor Swift and my <laughs> limited knowledge, but curiosity about fame, um, I think we'll be watching that in the next few weeks on Netflix. Yeah. And it's, it's nice. It's like 85 minutes long. It doesn't overstay. It's welcome. Uh, it's really, you know, tightly edited and, and put together. And, uh, and so it's a little uh, interesting, uh, piece of filmmaking about exactly what we're discussing which is pop culture well that's awesome well my uh my big watch recently is, a, is actually a, it's a, a a rewatch i guess it's become my theme for the beginning of this year i've been enjoying rewatching some things um but after the academy awards and taika watiti's uh, academy award for a best adapted screenplay for jojo rabbit um, my wife and i went back to one of his earliest films uh boy uh, from 2010, um, which is currently available to stream in like eight different places for free. It's on Hoopla. It's on <laughs> Vudu with ads. Um, if you have, if you're lucky enough to have Canopy, it's on Canopy, Epics, and Fandor. If you have it, the Fandor app via Amazon, all those places just for free. Everywhere else is like a three dollar rental, but it's also 87 minutes. Um, have you ever seen Boy Scott? I have not seen it. So I it is so at 87 minutes it is a kind of everything about Taika Waititi distilled into this little New Zealand story um, takes place in a small village and boy is our title character everyone calls him boy um, and so it's like he is sort of a child with no name and um, and his dad was has been absent who's played by Taika Waititi and shows up he escaped maybe escaped from prison it's a little unclear on his sketchy arrival um, <laughs> and boy is basically trying to, to connect with his dad he wants to be cool part of a gang like his dad um but think about that all with like the taika waititi like part of a gang man like it's like it's not it's not very (laughs) serious in that way but the emotions are very serious uh or or, you know let me rephrase they're they're very real it's not an overly serious movie at all it's very funny it's actually uh doing some research on it just uh falling down the the google rabbit hole it's one of the it's like the second i think highest uh, box office new zealand film in New Zealand. Um, oh. and so for a long time, it was number one. Um, and I think, I think number one is now hunt for the wilder people, the other Taika Waititi. <laughs> um, but it's just a charming little movie. It's spun out of a short film that he made that I watched a year or two ago on, um, I think on YouTube, it's just out there somewhere. Um, but it's very funny. You'll see a lot of uh, Taika's humor and heart in it. Taika's in the movie, so it's fun to watch. He's just a fun screen presence, but you'll see several of his other recurring kind of cameo actors are in the film. Um, but it's just got a big old heart. Boy loves, you, you mentioned Michael Jackson, but Boy uh, loves Michael Jackson and sort of uh, like has this goal of being able to see Michael Jackson in concert. And it's it's all just very sweet and not... 
um, not marred by the realities of the world, but is sort of dealing with the realities of being a kid sort of subjected to the adults around you. Um, so it's this, it's a good balance. And I think it's funny to watch him be so proficient at that heartfelt and very serious, somber slash hysterically funny, earnest comedy combo that he's, he does, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, he was he was perfect then, and he's, in my opinion, only kind of uh, continuing to improve with the same, uh, the same in the same wheelhouse. But it's really fun. It's delightful. It's charming. Um, the one thing I was recommending it to um, my sister-in-law because she loved Jojo Rabbit. That was her favorite movie of the year. And I said, "You've got to watch Boy." The only thing I'll say is, for about ten minutes, you may not understand a single thing people are saying, and then suddenly, <laughs> suddenly the accent will start to click. I would I would say subtitles are fine because the accent. Are, are very thick there's i mean for them totally it's it's natural they're not trying to uh, change their voices to a, a world audience so you sort of have to change your ears to to their voices and it's sort of like when you watch a, a british tv show if you haven't watched one in a long time and you flipped it and you're going wait a second everything's just slightly off and, and you have to yes. kind of calibrate there's always the one scottish guy on the yes. british tv show Yes. And so it's like you can understand everybody until the guy who comes in going. And then you're like, what in the world? And, you know, if it's something like prime suspect, he may have just, you know, dropped the biggest clue in the show and you didn't understand a word he said. One of my favorite jokes in train spotting is how they're all Scottish. So in theory, they should all be hard for us to hear. But even they have that one guy who's like the hardest one to understand. Yeah. <laughs> um, but boy is really delightful. I thought it was. Um, I, I've I, we watched it. I think the first time, maybe, maybe when Taika was announced as the Thor director, because we're big mm -hmm. Marvel, we're big Thor fans. It's we're weirdly the weakest of the trilogies. We love those movies. Um, and so when Taika was announced, I was like, Katie, hey, we gotta we gotta watch more of his movies. And we watched Boy, three or four years ago, and really enjoyed it. And honestly being more in sync with his sense of humor these days, having watched what we do in the shadows and we've seen hunt for the wilder people probably a dozen times. Um, that's a family favorite in our house and bull mine and hers, the little boy, Ezra hasn't watched it yet. I think it might be too much, but, um, but we, we really have gotten in sync with him and coming back to boy. It's like watching it for the first time because it's just, we get what he's doing. We get his rhythms. And we also, we get the, we understand we have an ear for him now. And so, um, if, if you're liking Taika, I would deeply recommend going back and watching boy. Um, if you haven't seen it yet. Cool. I'll have to do that. All right, and we're back uh, to discuss one of my all-time favorite films. Uh, this is not just a uh, a, a favorite of, of Wong Kar Wai's films or uh, a favorite of the 21st century films. Everybody was making their lists of the best films of the century so far and things like that when we... Uh, moved into a new decade, but this is truly one of my all-time favorite movies, and I've seen it. I think this time I did rewatch it uh, for this podcast, uh, and I think this is the, probably the fourth or fifth time uh, that I've seen it. Uh, and actually, interestingly enough, I, I double-dipped my homework assignment 
And this is going to be the film that I'm going to show to my local film society group tomorrow night. And uh, so they've never been exposed to it. Uh, but it's, it's actually the, to tell you the truth, the, the inspiration for showing it was, uh, I showed brick, uh, in January and okay. that's an odd way to start yeah. this because the two films are nothing alike. And so, uh, one of the people in the film society group said, uh, any chance that you would show a romance in February in honor of, of Valentine's day. Okay. And, uh, and so, you know, I mean, she, she liked brick, but you know, kind of gritty, you know, crime movie and everything. And so not to be, be sexist, but it was a woman and she was like, can you give us a, a love story? Something, uh, you know, nice and pleasant like that for February. And I only thought for just a second and I thought, yeah, I, I will absolutely give you a love story, uh, in February. And then uh, when Parasite won Best Picture, I thought, how perfect. I'm going to give you a uh, love story and subtitles <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as a film for uh, uh, for February. But uh, this was the first movie by Wong Kar Wai uh, that I saw. This was, uh, for a lot of people, it's uh, Chunking Express or maybe even movies earlier than that. But uh, he had kind of flown under my radar uh, and I saw this film predominantly because it's on the Criterion Collection. And so, you know, when in doubt, uh, they're, they're a pretty good uh, curator of, uh, of international cinema. And so I picked this one up and I was just knocked out. I was just mesmerized. I mean, from the, uh, the cinematography uh, to the costumes to just kind of the understated genius of it all. I love the fact that... It doesn't spell everything out for you. Uh, it makes you work a little bit to kind of understand the relationships of the characters uh, and what is going on and why it's going on. And it is one of those films that I find each time that I watch it, uh, I learn something new. And, and I pick up on maybe a nuance that I didn't notice before uh, or a relationship or a link between the characters or the events that I didn't pick up on before. And so any film that, you know, rewards rewatching like that, uh, that is usually a sign that you're talking about a, a superior film. And so, uh, so that was kind of the, the perfect storm to arrive on, uh, this selection. I had somebody, uh, wanting me to show, a, a romance while at the same time wanting to ride that, uh, post parasite, uh, you know, foreign film wave to continue to introduce people uh, to uh, the little uh, one-inch barrier that he talked about, uh, the subtitled film. And uh, this one has a lot to unpack for a film that, you know, isn't isn't uh, filled with monologues and isn't filled with, you know, uh, big, you know, passages of dialogue and things like that. There's There's a lot at play. Uh, here in this movie. And and then, of course, um, I'm a big fan of Barry Jenkins' uh, film Moonlight. And uh, he referenced, I mean, he name-dropped Wong Kar Wai. He said that, that scene at the end in kind of the diner-type uh, restaurant or whatever another, he said, I was just, you know, totally stealing the style of uh, of In the Mood for Love when, when I shot that, uh, you know, that scene. And so uh, Wong Kar Wai seems to, to be on a lot of people's minds. 
Yeah, no, it's um, it's a fantastic pick. This is one of my all-time favorite movies. It's um, I so I'm a I'll mention the broken record here. I'm a I'm on Letterboxd and Letterboxd as your profile, you don't do a whole lot. It's sort of a brief paragraph of who you are. It's a film sort of tracking social media platform. If anyone doesn't know, and but then it asks you to put your top four movies. Um, and it has this been is, this is weird because <laughs> mine has it too. Does it really? Mm-hmm. It's uh, mine. Mine, I think, is it's a number two or three, but it is never gone below one of either one of those, and has always been in my top four. Um, it is. It is just. I think it is. Um, it encapsulates a lot of the cinema that I love. It's uh, sort of. I put this in the sort of the same family. Moonlight's obviously a good one because it's so rever- reverential and referential. Um, but it, I put this in the same category as like a certified copy, um, which is another movie I love, or maybe even Clouds of Sils Maria. Those type of sort of ethereal sort of tone and emotion. And there's all there's so much more going on than what's right in front of you, but what's right in front of you is good enough anyway. And, um, it, but it's, it's just, this was the first, you know, um, this goes back for me. Um, I was thinking about this today cause you and I have talked around having this conversation for a long time. And, yeah. and so I, uh, I was thinking when I first saw, I was trying to figure out when I first saw it. And I realized that, um, when, so, so we're both, uh, uh, have spent a good deal of life in Columbus, Georgia. That's where we met. And they built a new library uh, on Macon Road uh, when I was in high school. And they had all of their Criterion DVDs were over there. And um, me and my hipster friends, and we were like pre-hipsters. And like I, I was I was Timothy Chalamet and Lady Bird if I had no skills with girls. That was exactly <laughs> who I was at that age. And, um, and so we would go, of course, straight to the Criterion collections to get our pretentious film on but in the mood for love was one of those that i i'm I'm positive i rented from the library and uh, gosh i must have watched it so many times and it's my first ringtone that's how cool i was i made the 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 main theme from the movie uh, Mm -hmm. my ringtone um And it really shaped a lot of what I looked for. Like, okay, Wong Kar Wai. I've heard it, I had heard of Chunking Express by way of Quentin Tarantino. That's a movie that he gets a kind of producer credit on in the distribution in America. He kind of put his seal of approval on it. Um, and I knew about it, but couldn't find it or didn't find it. Um, but and In the Mood for Love was sort of like on the list. Okay, if I can't find that, come see this. And I found it, and it just hit hard sort of as a high schooler i thought that's that's the romance i'm looking for you know the one that devastates you and destroys your life and that sort of thing um but but it just it hit me very hard from a young age and what i found uh, this is probably i've probably seen it as many times as you have all the way through um and i and i truly and i've seen it you know over that many years and it feels like every time i come to it it is uh, because of my age or experience or watching the experience of people around me um, and my my life, my romantic life is mostly boring. We, we were, we've been married for almost 10 years and we're pretty good. Like it's just kind of just good, stable, nice. I don't have much dramatic stuff to, to, to add to it. But what I see, you see the people around you. Now I see people around me in these characters. And so it's, it's, it's amazing how my take on it has evolved over the years and how every time I watch it, 
it doesn't feel like the first time because I'm so com like I'm so comfortable with the colors and the music and the performances and the look and the feel of the thing. But I notice narrative things that I never noticed before, and I wonder, will I feel this way about that plot point next time I watch it? And that's sort of the magic, is I probably won't, and that's that's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's funny that uh, that you should say that. It gets sadder the older I get. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, when, when I first saw it now, of course, I mean, to qualify things, what it came out in 2000. So, I mean, I would have been 30, uh, when it first came out and certainly didn't catch up to it then. I mean, it was easily, you know, 2010 or so probably, uh, when I first, uh, saw it. Uh, but it's interesting that as you age the, the road, not taken theme uh, to the film, one of many themes to the film, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, path not explored relationship that didn't, you know, come to pass, uh, aspect of it, uh, it, it really, really hits with you. And, and with me, it's not necessarily so much like a romantic thing. I mean, I've been married for 28 years, uh, so it's it's not oh gee I wish I'd gone with some woman that I met ten years ago right. I would want my wife to listen to this and think what uh, but it's just you know life events and and life choices it could be anything from a career choice uh, to you know just the way that you may have treated a friend and and you wound up alienated from that friend and wish that you hadn't done that and so there is uh, a lot of regret. Uh, that runs through the third act, at least, uh, of this movie. Not not necessarily the the early parts of it, uh, but where they're kind of bringing it home at the end. Uh, it it definitely has that feel to it. I agree. I, it's one of those things. Is, uh, so I always I work in a big company, a big corporation, and so I have sort of the standard sitcom version of coworkers, right? And um, and so I, I have this frame of how I talk about movies to people who watch maybe three movies at the th in the theater and rewatch probably the same 15 movies throughout the year, which is not there's nothing bad about that. They love what they love. They know more about certain Marvel movies and certain movies like Shawshank Redemption comes up a lot. I kind of tweeted a joke about this recently, but 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 people know more about those movies that they love than I ever will. So it's not a I'm not being negative, but what I find is you have to sort of translate why you like a thing that they don't understand or that they haven't seen. And and so what I find with movies like this, um, my favorite movie of all time still to this point is Lost in Translation, which I think is a great it makes sense that these two movies are on my top four, that they're very much siblings in, in their own way. Um, and uh, you can even find on the Criterion channel Sofia Coppola talks about she does one of like the little two minute little talks about the movie that they mm -hmm. have clips of and um but it is the fact is that what you just said about you know a missed opportunity everybody can relate to a missed opportunity it doesn't have to be romantic and when i can tell people well here's the thing about in the mood for love is yes it's this devastating romance if you invest in that but what it can really be about like like so much of art and that to me this really is a piece of art is it's about 
every type of missed opportunity. I mean, think about, I mean, I I joked with somebody one time because they went to go get some donuts and they didn't have their favorite donut. I was like, you know how sad you were about that donut? That's devastating for you in that moment. And in that moment, In the Mood for Love was about your donut. It's just, it's it's, (laughs) movies and, and stories and art can be about anything in any moment. And so as I was watching it, and in the last day, I really, I really watched and and thought about. I have a coworker who has always sort of longed for a different career path, but chose the one they have for stability and comfort. And mm-hmm. and they had opportunity. They could have gone. They could have lived a much different life. And now they plan to retire in that life. But then they lament openly and freely. So I don't mind vague booking about it. But they that they wish they had done something different 10 years ago and their whole life is different. It's not bad. It's just different, and they'll always wonder what if. And to me, in the mood for love, love is the is the subjective word right there. These characters, it's about love, but the film is about whatever you would put in that space. So, in the mood for underline, what's your what's your thing that you, that you longed for that you wonder what if? And I feel like the movie really supports the contemplation of whatever that thing is that fits in that blank. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting. It's funny because the first time that you see the film, the little epigraph at the beginning doesn't really mean anything to you. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that as you watch the film multiple times, it's almost like he is handing you the subtext written out for you on the screen at the very beginning, but you just don't understand what it is because you haven't seen the movie yet. Yep. And so when the, when the opening credits come up, uh, you know, it, it has a, a few lines of, uh, of prose written there and it says it's a rest. It, it is a restless moment. She has kept her head lowered to give him a chance to come closer, but he could not for lack of courage. She turns and walks away. And so, you know, there's your, your path, not taken, uh, your, your choice not made. And, and it's really an interesting bookend because the, the little postscript that comes just before the end credits run, you know, that is almost from her perspective, from a female perspective, She's waiting for him to profess his love, to make some kind of move, so to speak. And he doesn't, and she turns and walks away. But it's all framed in she, 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 Mm -hmm. uh, as far as point of view is concerned. So then the closing is he remembers those vanished years as though looking through a dusty windowpane, the past is something he could see but not touch. And everything he sees is blurred and indistinct. And so it deals with, you know, the fading of those memories and the, the, the vague recollection uh, of those, you know, choices uh, not made and, and roads not taken. And so it's really there, there's a lot of, of kind of bookending and duality uh, in this movie in their circumstances you know, we first meet our main characters when they both come to the same building at just about the same time to rent an apartment, uh, and only for him to find out that she has already rented it just moments before. 
And then he kind of looks into the apartment next door. And so there's a lot in this movie about coincidence and timing. And so that's really kind of what those, those written passages at the beginning and the end uh, of the film are also saying is there was this chance, this opportunity, but it might not have been the moment. You know, it's really kind of like the star-crossed lovers uh, kind of idea. You know, they loved each other. They potentially could have had a life together, but it just didn't come for them at the right time. And the thing I love about this movie as well, going along the same path, is so so the the leads, um, uh, Tony Long and uh, Maggie Chung, they they really their characters, their their performances. I mean, they're very edited. So let's let's be real. Wong Kar Wai shoots a lot. He's kind of famous for very long shoots. Having like uh, the joke becomes these. There's like five versions of this movie he could have edited because there's so much footage. <laughs> right. There were so many plans or some, and and he edits the the film and the performances to the tone and the feeling and the, the the story he's ultimately trying to tell that he creates along making the film. Uh, there's a great interview that I've probably watched probably the third time, because uh, I think this is the third time I've tried to podcast about this movie and we're finally doing it. Um, but there's a great interview on the Criterion channel and on the Criterion Blu-ray with the film critic. It's like 20 minutes long. And he's sort of talking about Wong Kar Wai's creation process. And he talks about how this was originally supposed to be part of sort of two movies that take place mm-hmm. in different time periods. And mm-hmm. he couldn't get China's permission to do things to, to film, to make the film the way he wanted to, because he didn't have a full script that they wanted script approval. And he said, I don't really make movies that way, <laughs> which is right. fascinating because it right. seems when you look at it now, it seems very intentional and tight, but he kind of finds his movies. So what he found in the edit of this film are two performances that really sell the idea that these two people, this was their momentous nuclear bomb, love, passion, feeling of their life, which sort of solidifies for us, the audience, that feeling of how important it is. Both characters, when they look at each other, when there's little hand touches, you look at that and you think like my, again, my mind, I go think about you know, two people who work together and their and their hands touch like that because they've had feelings but not said anything. Like how intense would that little moment be? And that's what it is for them. And the between the edit and the two performances that were found within in the uh, the the shooting of the film, it, it, it I buy all of it. I buy the the bigness of their passion, but it makes that that fill in the blank whatever it is for you that you know that's missing that you missed out on it feels like the big deal thing because that he has found within his shooting these two amazing performances that are showy in almost no way there's basically one sort of uh, outburst of emotion scene um where uh where Maggie Chung gets very you know very emotional and cries but even that is it's more heartrending and and sad because of how much she's kind of trying not to do that either and so it's it's amazing right. you know and there's and there's an interesting line of dialogue 
in in that moment. You know, there's this moment where the 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 conceit. I mean, we're we're kind of doing this podcast from the the standpoint of people have seen this film, right? So that's why we don't spend a whole lot of time sitting around. You know, just plot recapping. Uh, because we're assuming that everybody has seen this. And it's uh, 99 but... minutes, so just do it if you haven't done it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the conceit is is it's kind of like they pretend that their flirtation is them mimicking how their spouses met each other. Mm-hmm. And so they're also ending it that way. Uh, and so he is in essence kind of rehearsing saying goodbye to her when her husband returns from this business trip and he's going to go to Singapore and he's basically just decided kind of in a way to exile himself that I can't have you, you're not going to leave your husband. And so I'm just, you know, uh, going to leave and, and just, you know, I, I basically, I can't, you know, literally live next door to you, see you every day and not be with you. And so she starts crying and he's referring to the fact that this is like a rehearsal. And so when he looks at her, he says, it isn't real. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, you can take that line a lot of ways. You know, it isn't real that he's saying goodbye at that moment, but he's also kind of commenting on the nature of the relationship itself. You know, this, this isn't real. This has been kind of, you know, a fantasy, you know, a fantastical kind of thing between us that cannot really ever happen. And so there are times in the film where you can take just this one line of dialogue and read it two, three different ways. And so I really love that part uh, of the performance as you were pointing out is, you know, you're having kind of a, not kind of a, but definitely an, an emotional moment. And then he's bringing it back down to earth by saying it isn't real. You know, I, um, I just read today this amazing, um, and I'm waiting into to dicey waters and I'll wade right back out, but this amazing, uh, letter to the, uh, the editor, I think it was the New York times by Britt Marling from another earth and mm-hmm, the OA. Mm-hmm. And right. I really, I really like her. I really like uh, another earth. Um, the sound of my voice, I like a good bit, but another earth is a movie that really resonated with me. Um, great double feature with uh, melancholy. If you want to be sad for about four weeks, um, <laughs> But um, sometimes I just want to feel that way with a movie, so I do that. But um, right. but she was writing about sort of the feminine story, right? Like like a strong female character. One of the great, it's, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but one of the great statements she made was a strong female character is essentially a woman who could do everything a man could do, but you still want to see her with her clothes off, and or something like that. And so it, <laughs> right. and, and and so I really liked it. But what she was talking about is getting to the essence of like, what is the female journey is different than the male journey. And that's totally cool. And it should be different. I don't think we should be the same, but I think that we should be different and they should be different versions of the story. And, and so I read that coming off of watching this movie for the fifth or sixth time. And one of the things I noticed was she uh, earlier in the film, before this moment where he says it's not real, refuses um, the request to basically consummate the relationship. Should we do everything that our spouses are doing? And she right. says, we can't be them. 
that's her call. And he he agrees. He acquiesces. They don't make a big drama of him hemming and hawing. But I think that's a very earnest statement from her, and it makes sense from her. And I think it honestly is a a more feminine response to to what they should do because it's not coming out of spite for them which i think is more of a masculine like i only spite them i'm not going to be them but she's saying i can't do that i can't be them and it's hard because i think she does love tony lung's character and and then when he says it's not real that feels very masculine in that he's saying look we're not doing anything so that's like like this isn't this isn't real we have not made this real and and it's amazing that a male director in 2000 i think i think achieved which is why i think this movie has lasted as it has this balance of a of a very feminine and masculine love story together it's not one or the other and 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 i basing this on the the women and the men in my life so your people may be different out there listening but that's i really do think it's an amazing balance of a feminine and masculine working together to tell this story of longing and and i feel like there's a lot of power to this film because of that balance and it doesn't take sides it's just all heart-wrenching and and difficult right no no i think you're right and the interesting thing is you know she as you pointed out outwardly weeps uh for you know just the end of of the relationship or at least the impending end of the relationship and he doesn't appear to have an emotional reaction but one of the things that I've noticed, and I don't know if you've noticed this, you know, the clothes are so very important to this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they tell a lot of different things. But the one thing that happens with him is the more upset he gets, the more disheveled he becomes. Mm-hmm. And so you have him perfect with the suit, the tie, the hair in place when he is with her. And life is right. When there is some distance from her, the tie is gone. The sleeves are rolled up. He's a little more, not really rumpled. I mean, he's kind of an elegant looking dude, so it's going to be hard to, <laughs> right. to, 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 be, uh, to be rumpled. But less in control of his appearance, a little less, uh, you know, buttoned down. And then the one moment in the film where they've been apart the longest, he has he has leased this separate little apartment to become allegedly a writing retreat. But it becomes a place for them to kind of rendezvous, not sexually, but just spend time together away from the scrutiny of the side-by-side apartments. And she's like, I shouldn't come there. And it's been a number of days that she has not gone And when she gets there, his shirt is untucked, the top few buttons are unbuttoned, his hair's kind of must. He looks like he's kind of physically breaking down from the lack of being with her. Yeah. No, I, yeah. And and so that was one of the things that I kind of know. Coincidence, sure, it's 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 possible, Uh, but I took that as kind of maybe being the way that you know it's getting to him is his his perfect outer appearance and and kind of unflappable exterior that he has uh when he is with her and kind of you know in a way drawing some power from being with her uh starts to come undone when he's away from her 
No, I absolutely agree. And there, there's also this um, this sense memory thing going on. I, I, so my wife uh, it now directs commercials, video you know, commercials. And it's, it's this really cool thing because she'll talk to me about their planning. And I sort of become, I've joked, I've joked with her that I'm like the Marsha Lucas to her situation, to her George, because like, I'm the unknown editor of things. We'll sit back and talk about things, but I don't get any credit. And, and it's, 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 it's it's been very fun for me though. It's like a great release after the end of a long work day, just kind of nothing matters to me. So I can say whatever I want to say. Right. Um, But one of the things I was talking to her about recently was, sort of tactile filmmaking as in you see somebody touch a thing that you're that, that the audience will be familiar with like a pillow or water i mean and, and the, the the audience immediately connects with and knows that feeling um and and so i noticed this time having we're about two weeks post like a big conversation about this that that sort of broke a very small element of a big shoot for her which is i was like yay i'm i'm useful um but but in watching this movie i watched how much wong kar wai has these moments of touching a wall a dress a hand and somehow even though hong kong couldn't be further hong kong in that time period um of the 50s and the 60s couldn't be further from where i am now right i i I would have these moments where i went i yeah no i i I know what a brick wall feels like. I, I, I was brought into it. And so I, I, this time around, I was very moved by, because I feel like their loneliness is, is uh, expressed in some of these touches, the hand along the wall, because they're not holding somebody's hand, the touch of a dress because they're not embracing. I, I felt like I felt their loneliness in this visceral, tactile way this time that I never really experienced before. And it's a, it's a, it's a pretty spectacular trick. Um, and, and I'm, I'm pretty amazed by some of the stuff I've never noticed before that they're doing with touching and you see steam coming out of a rice cooker. And I'm like, I know what that's like. I have a tea kettle and I have a instant (laughs) pot and like, I can, I can feel that heat as she's sad. And I, I, I very much felt the film this time, which was a, which is a pretty wonderful new experience. Yeah. And, and, you know, and also that's, that's kind of the way that, you know, I mean, how often do you think of stuff like, and especially me, because, you know, I'm older and so, you know, uh, you know, grandparents died longer ago for me. Uh, and, but it's like, I can remember the way a grandmother's house smells, but yeah. then if you asked me what certain things looked like, I'd be like, yeah, I don't really quite remember all the details. And, you know, somebody will show you a picture and you'll be like, wow, it's a lot smaller than I remember it. Uh, but the sensory things, you know, the the smelling or the way somebody's voice sounded, uh, you know, things like that. I mean, just, you know, crazy things like somebody mentioned a, a friend, a, a guy that I knew in high school and I remembered his car. He had this, you know, just big green steel, just beat up, you know, just, I mean, when, when cars were literally made of steel, I mean, you could run that thing into the side of a building and it wouldn't have scratched the bumper. And, uh, and so for whatever reason, you know, when he came up, I just remembered riding around in that car with music blasting. So once again, sensory, you know, I could, I could virtually remember the band that we were listening to. And so it's, it's just interesting because that is the way that, you know, that memory tends to work 
Yeah. How do you feel about this is one of those things that when I do get people to watch, it usually comes up in a negative on a first watch. Um, So for anybody who maybe watched the movie for the first time um, and it has some questions, Scott, how do you feel about the ending, the whispering into the hole and the shots of the, the temple? How do you feel about the ending of the film? Yeah, you know, the the funny thing is the only qualm that I have with the ending of the film is I wish the payoff didn't come so close to the setup. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, he he's having this discussion, I believe it's with Ping, uh, after they've already gone to Singapore. And uh-huh. uh, so this is third act. And Ping says something along the lines of, well, you know, I don't have, you know, the kind of secrets that you have to keep. And he said, well, you know what they did, you know, with 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 secrets uh, and, you know, that you, you know, go to a hole in a tree and 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 tell your secret uh, into this tree and then kind of mud it in and everything. Uh, and so to me, there had been scenes with Ping much, much earlier in the movie. I mean, I think when he's. You know, it's hard to call this an affair, but it's certainly an affair of the heart. Sure. uh, When he's carrying on this affair with her and they meet a couple of different times uh, and Ping is even kind of infatuated with her, but in much more of a a basic kind of way uh, and is talking about, you know, oh, I'm going to, you know, leave my hat the next time that I see her so that I have to go back and see her again. And so to me, there were places in the earlier, like in the first act of the film that they could have had that conversation. And then when it comes full circle and kind of comes to fruition at the end of the film, I think it has more impact. So, so, so that's been my only criticism is each time I've seen it, it's kind of like they drop the idea and then 15 minutes later, he's doing it. And yeah. so I've always felt like it was a bit abrupt. Uh, but, you know, the the I, I find it fascinating when I was talking before about like bookends, you know, from the quotes at the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. You know, the ending of the movie is the anti beginning of the movie. They they meet fortuitously and, and just kind of coincidentally at the beginning of the film and then they can't link up and can't cross paths with one another at the end of the film through a variety of coincidences. So it's like you have coincidence bringing them together or fate or whatever you want to call it at the beginning of the film, but then it's keeping them apart at the end. And so it's funny for the first time ever, I looked up there. So there's a moment before, as we transition to the end where it shows footage of um, president de Gaulle of France coming to Cambodia and visiting. And I took some time to Google because I said this time around I'm podcasting about it officially. I need to I need to look into this. I need to not just roll with this, which is kind of what I've done in the past. Um, full disclosure. Um, and it did seem to be this moment where um, things could have gone a lot different. Um, in a lot of ways in that section of the, the world, uh, especially leading into the, the, what we would call the Vietnam War. Um, and what ends up happening is de Gaulle comes and what is expected to potentially be a, um, a, a, a change in the tide, a very helpful visit for the, um, the government of Cambodia, kind of coincidentally for no real big reason, 
a changing of the tide in a different way because not much happens on that visit. It's this great moment. It's a good moment for them to be seen with President de Gaulle, and, and, and the idea of it is very good. It's this very hopeful moment. But nothing is ever the same after that kind of because of no really good reason. Just stuff didn't work out the way that the government thought it would. And I kind of I, – I this time around really liked how Wong Kar Wai is sort of – I don't know. It sort of zooms out for a minute. It's almost like – something Malik would do with like tree of life where it becomes cosmic for a brief moment or something. It's just, <laughs> right. but he sort he sort of zooms out and says, and historically like life can just be this way. And, um, and I've never, I've never picked up on all of that. Cause I've never looked into it in a big way because what happens where he whispers his secret into the, into the temple has been more important, um, in my mind, but seeing how he's saying this is, um, this kind of sea change for them. And it isn't some big shocking thing. There's no like assassination. There's no crate. It's just De Gaulle doesn't do what Cambodia thinks they'll do. Cambodia's disappointed and the whole tide sort of starts to change, but which is a very, very simplified version of history, but Google it. It's fascinating. But the point being the theme of the movie happens in real life. Um, and then he goes to this temple, the most, one of the most famous temples in, in Cambodia and, and whispers into it and, and walks away. And we kind of finish the movie out with these shots of these everlasting temples and monuments to our belief systems, which in a lot of ways, what Wong Kar Wai is equating that to is our secrets. These monuments to the things we could not tell someone else that will live on long after we are gone. Um, and it's honestly in those shots at the temple that it, that feel more modern than anything else in the film because it is shot now and you can't de-age things. But it is shot in a way that feels like it could just as easily have been taking place in the 60s or today and and i feel like it's becomes this timelessness of secrets um yeah I like that a lot yeah and you know and one of the things that i've always considered is the silent monk sitting there yes and so i also think that there's an element of what must be the magnitude of that secret if you're going to say it in a place where you're not supposed to speak yeah, that's good. I like that. I, I I was thinking about the monk today, but that's I couldn't get there, and that's I like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of you know they don't tell you any of that, but it's kind of like the whole what do you associate with a monk? Bows of silence. Yeah. And so here's this holy place, uh, obviously a holy place for a lengthy period of time from the way that it looks, uh, and uh, and and so you know what must uh, that secret be that you're gonna gonna potentially break the silence there uh, to you know bury it within in essence it's kind of its foundation and uh, well it's funny because and I think this is a is an awesome uh, kind of testimony uh, to this film that you you look for. Uh, you know, additional nuances and additional things, you know, what are things that I might be overlooking? And so, uh, you know, the epigraph at the beginning, the postscript at the end, the De Gaulle visit that you were just talking about. And so mine was, I wanted to see a translation of Kisas, Kisas, Kisas. Okay. And so I looked it up. That was my Google hunt. And so first off, I mean, it's perfect that that translates as maybe, maybe, 
maybe. <laughs> yeah. And so the the lyrics quickly, they're not that lengthy. It says, every time I ask what, when, how, and where, you always reply, maybe, maybe, maybe. And days pass like this, me growing desperate and you answering, maybe, maybe, maybe. You lose time thinking, thinking for God's sake, how much longer, how much longer. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and so I just thought, you know, because I've always loved the the music. There's not a lot of it, but it's almost like, you know, he he picks these several themes and kind of musical motifs, and then he's going to play them in the places that he thinks that he, that it fits. And so you have the beautiful cello music that is the orchestral piece uh, that that recurs frequently. And so then this Nat King Cole uh, rendition of a uh, of a, of another you know individual song. I thought, you know, I've heard this and heard this and love it and everything, and I have absolutely no idea what he's saying. And so this time I thought, I'm going to look that up and have that when we podcast. And so just once again, thematically, you know, it, it it's just a, a little bit more to to chew on. Yeah. So so I love that. That's just like it's this is such it's a it's a rewarding watch it's like it's a good watch i i have actually have a hard time watching it in the evening because i've i've i used to watch i used to put it on and go to sleep so my brain is sort of programmed because the music's so relaxing um and i fall asleep and so I, when i watch it during the day uh, that's when i watch it it's it's i'm like perked up and so excited but watching it at night it's difficult for me but every time i watch it in the daytime it's like this is a whole new movie. There's so many more things to see. You you read things on the internet about theories about, you know, she has a son. Is that his son? Is it what's the how when mm -hmm. could that have happened? And it's like that's all there. Like I can see where you can put it, but I can also see where it couldn't be, and I can also see where it doesn't matter at all. And I love kind of that nature of a movie that doesn't uh, reject your plot hunting, but it but it doesn't embrace it either. It just sort of it exists. And you take it for what you will. It's like looking at a painting from a different angle or different lighting. And now you've noticed some new brush stroke you never noticed before. And that's right. the rare kind of film that can be watched over and over again and always feel like I don't have a complete view of it. Even if I never really have a complete view of any film, but I don't feel like I have a complete view of this film. Yeah, uh, you know, that's funny that you should say that. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with just kind of a purely plot breakdown of the film. Yeah. Uh, you know, everything doesn't have to be, you know, uh, metaphorical. I, I can't help but think of the giant rock in Parasite anytime I say metaphorical anymore. Right. And, 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 I, and I always point out to my friends, note that he was almost killed by the metaphor. So just right. <laughs> so don't so don't get too wrapped up in all of that, um, but uh, you know I get that the uh, the you know did they or didn't they when I've shown this to friends that becomes this big focal point. Well, did they or didn't they uh, you know consummate this relationship? Is that little boy uh, his child? Somebody says to me uh, that they're there you know uh, speaking. Uh, when she begins to cry and he said it isn't real and everything. And, and, and then uh, it cuts to them in the cab 
and something along the lines of, I don't want to go home yet. Uh, you know, kind of a, let's stay out tonight together. Yep. And so the, the thing is, is, you know, people say, well, that was it right there. That was when, you know, they, they quote unquote spent the night together in more ways than one It's right there in front of your face. And my response is, did you notice anything about that cab ride? The, the transition from that scene to the cab driving off. Tell me, I can't remember. They're not wearing the same clothes. It's not the same night. And in fact, if you watch the, the, I call it a courtship of sorts. If you watch this kind of interior portion of the film, not the very beginning with all of the setup and not all of the end with the thematic payoff, but the part that is based on the idea of kind of like routine where we see them repeatedly together Uh, repeatedly going to the noodle shop, things of that nature. If you watch, I think that it's being told out of order. Yeah. And so because like there's even a scene in the diner where they're sitting and eating and discussing and they're like ordering for each other as if it were the spouse. Mm -hmm. And the camera is focused on them. It pans like right. It goes past him, past her shows some empty booths, and when it comes back, they're wearing different clothes. Holy cow, I got to rewatch that. And so it's a different night. Yeah. And so I think part of it is the the idea of they did this a lot. I really yeah. think that that's really only the point, is that there were many nights in that diner, and there were many nights that they walked the streets, and there were many nights that they got in a cab and rode together, because if you watch it with a chronological mindset, they either have some considerable continuity errors <laughs> or like memory, it's it's being told in little patches here and there. And so I had always considered that it would be fun because uh, I'm a dork movie nerd <laughs> to take that section of the film and cut the moments together where they're wearing the same outfits. You know, it's and funny. see how it would play chronologically. Ebert used to do these scene by scene breakdowns. Like he would do, like uh, he would go to different seminars or whatever, and he would have a film student class or critic, gr- you know, group, and they would go scene by scene through a movie. Right now, I want you to do that. You host that, Scott, and I will attend, and we'll just go scene by scene, noting the clothes. We'll make charts. It can just be a seminar of two. I'll do just the two of us. That's fine. But but we just, I would love to do that. That sounds. Okay. But I think that that's the reason that she just wears these striking outfits Yeah, is I think you're supposed to be taking note of what she's wearing. And then when there's a transition that seems to be maybe just the next moment of that scene and you go, Hey, wait a minute now. She's not wearing the same thing she was just wearing. And so, I mean, he doesn't do it constantly so that it becomes some kind of gimmick. But I think if if you look, it certainly happens several times that the conti- what you think is the continuation of a given scene may be a different scene altogether. Yeah, oh, that makes sense. Wow. So are you excited to get the entire set on a 4K maybe? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm I'm such a Wong Kar Wai nerd that I will buy the Studio Canal version that is coming out over in Europe. 
And then I will probably still buy the Criterion version that's coming out here in the U.S. if the extras on them are in any way, shape, or form different. Well, that's I love it. I love it. The, so I do this thing where I I track my uh, my all time watching stats on Letterbox. Like I'm super obsessive about it. It's it's a sickness, really. It's not cool. It is sad how obsessed I am with it. <laughs> and so like I have like I don't want problematic people. Like because I know you can't really help some degree of things. But like if I know someone's terrible, I want them off of my stats. And so I've been tracking my director list, trying to get a certain person off of my top twenty five most watched because i have i have found that what i am i'm a potluck guy i have like a little bit of everybody right but not all of anybody and so um so but Wong Kar Wai is one of those guys um including like his shorts and stuff i've seen like 18 like accounted on letterboxd films so right. he's been solid on my top 25 because the other problem i have is like why are my guys all white americans let's fix that right <laughs> and so uh kurosawa who i love but i realized i've only seen like 10 of his films i've seen them multiple times but only like 10 and right. so uh, so i'm working on his films this, this year but uh but wong kar wai is one of those guys that was always solidly in my top 25 he's he's like a go-to guy for all films and so absolutely so and, and i think we would be remiss if we didn't plug the coffee table book do you know the book that i'm talking about it's, it's the book i want to buy all the time but it costs so much money and i always just can't pull the trigger <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I buy yeah. three DVDs that cost the same amount before I buy the one book. I'm yes. so sad. Yes, it. Uh, I bought it. I'm actually sitting here looking at it on Amazon so that it can tell me that I bought it on July the 12th, 2016. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's down to 43 bucks from 65. Okay. Nice. Uh, but it is basically based on interviews. It's a fellow by the name of John Powers. Uh, who had six lengthy conversations with Wong Kar Wai, uh, a lot of them at the locations where he shot things. He interviewed him at the restaurant uh, where they shot these scenes for In the Mood uh, for Love. Uh, they met at the snack bar where they shot Chungking Express. And so he went to the various scenes where these films had been made uh, and interviewed him about his films. And so there's like actual Q and a interview segments within the book. Uh, there's kind of essays within the book. And then I'm, I'm getting this off the Amazon, uh, listing. It says in lavishly illustrated with more than two, 250 photos. And so Wong Kar Wai kind of helped him curate, uh, visuals, but it's a really nice, I mean, it's just an amazing quality book. I have it truly sitting on a coffee table. Uh, in the uh, in the place where I live, uh, my well, that, that sounded weird. It's not a house. It's a <laughs> it's a loft apartment. So I, I, I say house sometimes out of habit. Uh, but um, but anyway, it's just it's an amazing book. And the and the incredible thing is, I can tell you right now, to my recollection, everything that they discuss about in the mood for love as text and subtext are all things that you and I have not mentioned on this podcast. So here's my deal, because that sounds amazing. So if I'm saying this to the audience, to you, to hold myself accountable, because this is inside baseball. This is kind of a weird scheduling thing for us. We're recording on a different day than usual, and everything got kind of delayed and wacky. But because of it, we've got like an extra week in the bank, right? So we're, we're good. So if we do 20 consecutive episodes, right, with no, like we don't miss a week, we don't do anything weird, I'm going to get myself this book. So I'm saying that's that's my number. 
that's nice. I have to jump. I'm gonna hold you to that. I have to jump through hoops to convince myself to do something like this. Um, Yeah, it's 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 truly a beautiful book, though. I mean, some of those coffee table books can kind of be cheaply put together uh, and everything, but it's just gorgeous looking and the glossy photography and everything like that. It's it's truly of my film books. Uh, one of my one of my treasures. So if you're a Wong Kar Wai fan out there and you don't have this book, uh, you definitely need to get it. Uh, it's it's interesting. I'll, I'll leave you with a thought and the people who watch this movie uh, uh, as, as a thought. Think of Wong Kar Wai as a child living in this situation, which he did with these very close shared apartments uh, in Hong Kong. And then think about all of the super low to the ground angles and visuals that he uses because it's a child's eye view from his childhood. And he's imagining all of the things that might have been going on between his neighbors right under everybody's noses. God, I love that. That's a great. That's a great place to end this conversation. And <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. We'll link to that book and on the website supermassivepop.com and in the show notes. I don't know if links work on on iTunes. I'll figure that out. But either way, we're going to link in the show notes uh, to the book so you guys can at least take a look at that to potentially pick it up. Um, so Scott, I texted you a couple of days ago and said I've got the the I've got a weird choice for next week. Yeah, um, I was totally intrigued. Okay, so don't don't freak out. Um, we're going to watch three movies for next time. <laughs> for a second, I thought you were going to say all 10 movies of the Decalogue. Uh, I anyway. thought about I thought about joking about that, making that a recurring joke. Um, but and I have thought about, like, how do we do the Decalogue? Do we do it in such? I don't know. Anyway, we'll get there one day. Um, so so three movies, except they're all short films. OK. Ah, cool. uh, and, and they're all three on different streaming services. So we're sort of really embracing armchair cinephile. I thought it would give us sort of as a teaser to folks, Scott's involved in some short film stuff out in the world. Absolutely. Um, And so I thought it would give us a chance to have that conversation. We had it a few years ago on a, on a a, a podcast by gone, but I thought it would be kind of nice to revisit. Uh, So what I have here, it's, I think you'll probably recognize these if you haven't seen them um, already. You you know you you'll have heard of them at least. And then one of them is a little bit older, um, but I think anyway, it's a good it's a mix. So the first thing I have uh, on Netflix is "What Did Jack Do" by David Lynch. So it's the David Lynch uh, interviewing a monkey <laughs> short <laughs> film. Um, so so a little bit of Lynch never hurt anybody. Maybe made somebody feel uncomfortable, but not it didn't hurt anybody. So we're gonna we're gonna do that one. Then the second one is back to uh, the Criterion Channel. They have a nice selection of short films, um, but I picked one uh, trying to go in a very different direction um, from the director Andrea Arnold. Her Academy Award winning short film Wasp. Um, and then from the Safety brothers from uncut gems, which we love. And I think you just podcasted about with the movie aisle, I believe yes. from the, the tweets that sort of thought it might've been. So kind right. of plucked for the movie aisle and what you were doing with them. Um, their new short film with Adam Sandler, uh, Goldman versus Silverman, uh, which is on YouTube and Vimeo. Um, so all streaming services all sort of fit the bill of what we're doing. Um, it's about an hour's worth of watching wasp, I think is the longest at about 30 minutes. Um, but I've really, I don't know. I sort of got a wild hair and just went, what could be a little different? Um, I love it. 
And so, uh, so That's three awesome. short films. Um, I will actually, what I'll do, I can't do it for Netflix because they don't do sharing the same way. Um, but I will um, embed the Goldman versus Silverman in the show notes. If Criterion lets me do that, then I'll do that for Wasp. But I'll link to all of these in the show notes as well for our listeners. Um, but there, you know, we you have about a week if you're listening to watch these um, and for us for recording. And, and I think that, I think it's like right at like 58 minutes worth of shorts. But um, I thought... You know, let's do variety. Old masters, you know, I think we both agree that the Safties are, if not there, on the way to being new masters. And yes. then Andrea Arnold is such a different filmmaker than both of those, but similar in, in some ways that I kind of like the overlap between her her sort of, I don't know. I think they connect, and so I think we'll have some good conversation there. So cool. Um, I'll have some some sort of format in mind of how we can talk about it, but I think the conversation will take care of itself uh, next week. Awesome. Um, yeah, man. So thank you so much for picking In the Mood for Love. It was it was fun to talk about it. It's one of my uh, favorite films. I, I always love an excuse to uh, to talk about it and to watch it. And um, I, it's I'm glad we finally got this out of our system. But I feel like I'm gonna get that book in like in 20. In, or I guess now at this point in like 16 episodes, and it'll be texting you, being like, "Oh my God, we didn't say this. We didn't say that." Um, <laughs> But that's the best kind of movie that makes you want to revisit it. So maybe when the uh, when the big release comes out, we may revisit and do a special uh, a Wong Kar Wai uh, follow up. That could be fun. That would be awesome. Great. Well, Scott, so tell everybody once again where they can find you on the internet if they want to see more of your stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I am uh, on Twitter at m scott underscore phillips, uh, and then I do uh, video reviews for uh, WRBL, which is a CBS affiliate in Georgia. And so you can find that at WRBL.com. And uh, then uh, if you want to find any of my written work, like more kind of looking at cinephile-type stuff, uh, I will be attending the True False Film Festival in Columbia, Missouri shortly. And uh, my coverage for that will be at TheMovieIsle.com. So I am scattered hither and yon. Awesome. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Supermassive Pop um, and on Letterboxd at Film Dispenser. Um, follow Supermassive Pop and and hit that notification button if you want them because I usually try to retweet stuff where we have some overlap with the movie aisle. So when you do cool stuff with Adam and, and you post some stuff there, we'll be retweeting that, especially from the True False Festival. You always have really cool things to talk about after that. And so um, we'll definitely be retweeting that as well. Um, and check out the movie aisle because you do a lot with them and they have a lot of cool stuff that we're not doing. Um, and um, yeah, I think there's just a lot of overlap and you can be happy looking at both of our sites all at the same time because um, I think you guys are just doing some fun stuff over there. Um, but everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, go on iTunes. We are on iTunes live. Everything's working and functioning correctly. Uh, give us a raise rating and a review we'd really appreciate that five stars helps people find us by itunes apple's algorithm so please hit that five stars uh, just so more people can find us and then uh, reach out and say something if you have an email you want to send to us something more long form i have a few friends out there who i know listen to my podcast and will send me emails and who like to do that you can email me at spencer s-p-e-n-c-e-r at supermassivepop.com I'll get those emails I'll be happy to read those on air share them with Scott if you have any questions my friend Bob you're out there I know you are um, so that's where you can uh, email us because I've been asked so there you go um, so anyway uh, so uh, thanks so much for listening and we will see you next week